Uh, thank you all for coming. Um, we all remember what happened a couple of years ago and the Pulse nightclub shooting uh, in Orlando. Uh, before that happened, what this book is about was the worst attack on uh, gay Americans, on the gay community in the United States history. Um, so I want to start by asking you just to give us a brief summary of what happened in 1973 at the Upstairs Lounge in New Orleans. Sure. Um, so before I start into that, and I will give the over-under, I just wanted to thank the Boston Athenaeum so much uh, for hosting this event. Um, I wrote the book here. Um, up on the third floor in the secretest corner, which I'm not going to tell anyone where it is. Um, but this is such an honor to be here today. And Tom, thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. Um, and Tom was encouraging me every day as I was writing the book here over the course of three years. Um, so the book Tinderbox that I wrote about is about a notoriously unsolved arson fire that took place at a gay bar in 1973 New Orleans and claimed 32 lives. Um, on the night of June 24th, 1973, um, in a secretive second-story gay bar called the Upstairs Lounge on the ragged edge of the French Quarter, uh, about 90 blue-collar, closeted, working-class gay men were gathered for what they considered to be the greatest night of their week, and it was the greatest drink special of the week, too, in that area, uh, and if any gay bar. It's called the Beer Bust. It was $1 for two hours of unlimited draft beer plus a returnable 50-cent deposit for the pitcher. This was New Orleans in the 70s, all right? They were, they were coming for fun. And um, on that night, in and amongst a lot of wildness and, and conviviality that was occurring inside, what was a legitimate queer oasis for closeted men who uh, were closeted for various reasons, closeted in their workplace, uh, closeted to their wives and families, uh, closeted to the military, um, in an era where, uh, where queer men such as themselves had to hide who they were or face an entire range of personal and professional consequences. But they were at the upstairs lounge that Sunday for fun. And in the midst of that fun and in, in, joy, a internally conflicted, um, violent, Gay, patron, gay for pay patron uh, was ejected from the upstairs lounge by the bartender. And as he was being ejected by, uh, from the bar, he shouted um, loudly enough for many in the bar to hear, he shouted, quote, I'm gonna burn you all out. And about 30 minutes later, uh, a fire began in the stairwell down on the first floor um, abutting the street that had served as the lone entrance and exit for all of the public patrons inside that bar. And the fire progressed up the staircase, burning, increasing heat, and it turns out everything in that nearby French Quarter bar was flammable, not up to code. Um, flames ex eventually, when a fire door opened into the second story haven where all these gay men were having fun, singing songs, uh, it ripped through that room, as if flames ripped through, as if launched from a flamethrower, uh, chewing up everything, uh, red-flocked wallpaper that had been common in the 1970s, eating up the carpet, burning through the ceiling tiles, um, and claiming the lives very quickly in about a span of three minutes of uh, 29 of the patrons inside that bar. And so uh, it, it, a panic ensued and people had about 30 seconds within the context of the upstairs lounge that night to choose which way to run. Um, and some made it out, a secretive back exit that nobody knew about, uh, 
up until that, the, that, the moment that emergency struck, and many did not. Many burned, uh, tried to force their way out through the far windows of the bar, um, and they met, um, essentially when they broke through the glass, they were stopped in their tracks by steel and iron bars which caged them in, and they burned in a mound. Uh, so tw within a span of about three minutes, 29 people were dead, uh, and the fire itself burned for less than 20 minutes. It happened all that quickly. One of the things that's unbelievable about this story, and there are a lot of them, is that those who did get out and survived, whereas if that happened today, you would immediately run and tell everybody what had just happened. Many of them didn't want to tell anybody where they had been burned, where they had been injured. Mm, yeah, they, they couldn't admit that they had just been in this bar because they would face a range of consequences that would, loon, would essentially be the end of their life in New Orleans, a city and a culture they loved. New Orleans is still a foreign country in U.S. soil. It's a very unique uh, you know, the very unique environment and locale. Um, it's the northernmost uh, Caribbean city, the westernmost Mediterranean city, and it nurtures a unique kind of Catholic Creole culture uh, that's, that's uh, unlike anywhere else in the world. In the 70s, though, uh, gay culture in New Orleans, um, in so much as it existed as a community, because a lot of men were separated uh, from one another mentally through various uh, divisions in the, in the institutional and also personal closets um, had forced gay men into a kind of underground where many of them uh, did not relate to each other outside of the, the gay bar havens where they saw each other. So um, you have to imagine uh, your favorite gay bar, You would, uh, if you were a gay man and you were going to walk up into the upstairs lounge, you'd check over your shoulder both ways to make sure that a coworker hadn't followed you, that you weren't tracked by a private detective or a police officer. And then you would, uh, you would sneak up a winding staircase and you wouldn't acknowledge anyone you knew until you reached inside the door of that haven. And that's where you got to be who you were. And that's where your private life and your gay life ensued. Anything out there uh, was, was essentially you lived uh, in euphemism. In other words, you lived, a, you lived a, a false heterosexual existence up to the point when you reached the upstairs lounge. And so many of the survivors, as you mentioned, uh, worked serious corporate jobs. There was an upstairs lounge survivor um, named Robert Van Langendonk, who uh, worked a corporate job at Shell Oil. Um, and he went by the euphemism, the nickname Bob Van in New Orleans gay bars, uh, because he didn't want any of his activities in the bars when he would go out to have fun to drift back into his corporate career and perhaps prevent him from maintaining his job, being uh, getting promotions he was looking for, et cetera. After he survived the upstairs lounge fire, um, he went to work the next day that Monday, um, and uh, he had actually, as a survivor, given, he'd uh, gone to the hospital because he'd received a small burn on his, uh, on his uh, wrist, and he'd given the name Bob Van. And he told me that um, at the workplace, uh, the, uh, when his coworkers read in the newspaper uh, that a, a gentleman named Bob Van had been registered at Charity Hospital, um, having been injured at the upstairs lounge fire, um, Robert told me that his coworkers came up and asked him, are you the Bob Van who was hurt? Hmm. And he told them no. You also write about how the person who ran the bar, the owner of the bar, hmm. went out into the street afterwards and said, this is the guy who did it to hmm. the cops. Yep. And they 
pretty much ignored him. Correct. So in the, in the crazy scene that followed the upstairs lounge fire, there were about 29 dead inside the bar on the second story, um, and flames were still exploding through the windows, um, and it attracted all of the city's emergency workers. So there's hook and ladder trucks just filling these one-way French Quarter streets, and there are about 15 people who are grievously injured who are just being laid out on the sidewalk, um, some of whom would later die um, in a burn ward of a nearby hospital. Um, and within this context, uh, the chief suspect uh, of the upstairs lounge fire, the gentleman who screamed, quote, I'm going to burn you all out, was a, the internally conflicted gay man named Roger Dale Nunez, was wandering around the street, kind of gazing up, looking at things, holding a cup of beer. Um, and Buddy Rasmussen, the bartender, recognized him and tried to drag him and bring him over to a police officer so that they could question and arrest him um, as a suspect. And the police officer in that time period, uh, New Orleans police uh, were not used to openly face, openly um, associating with the homosexual community, except in the case of arresting a few of them for crimes against nature or assorted other local ordinances uh, and harassment ordinances, all sorts of methods they could use to, to, uh, to persecute gay people. And uh, this police officer did not want to do, know what to do uh, when two homosexuals who were fighting each other were wrangling on the city street with the fire going on in the second story, and he told them to just move along just to move along. Um, and eventually, uh, although that, uh, that suspect, Roger Dale Nunez, was eventually um, located again uh, by law enforcement agencies, um, he was never, qu never questioned or charged or arrested. Um, and he kind of was permitted to live in New Orleans where he continued to commit other crimes. He was a, he was a kind of a manipulator and a con man. Uh, and he eventually died by suicide uh, the following year in 1974. Uh, which prevented a lot of uh, closure for individuals at the fire. In the span of time between the upstairs lounge fire and 1974, I should say too, he actually confessed to three people that he had been the one uh, that set the spark. And he'd say, he told them that he did so because he wanted to scare them and take revenge on the people who'd kicked him out of the bar that he wanted to be part of. Um, but this was a it's a very dark time for gay people because it was a time where people forget within the context of the institutional closet that many, um, many gay men could not relate to others like themselves. Um, this was a time when uh, many people believed that theirs was an individual burden. What do you make of the fact when you talk about that that the worst attack on the gay community was done by a gay man? Mm. And by the way, the Pulse nightclub shooter Mm. apparently had been to the bar before. Mm. I, I think that what I make of it is I think this is a huge reason why uh, the LGBT plus uh, movement for years and decades didn't know what to do with the upstairs lounge fire. Um, it was treated almost as a tragic event, um, but I think there were a lot of questions about whether it was an important one because it didn't fit traditional archetypes. Like this wasn't uh, the, the Ku Klux Klan uh, through, didn't throw a mm -hmm. Molotov cocktail on the door, or this wasn't like traditional events in the civil rights movement that had led to uh, become rallying cries, such as the Birmingham bombing, when it was clear that it was a hate group that had done this thing. Um, I think it took a long time for the queer community to wrangle with the fact um, that if this was gay on gay crime, which is the likeliest case, Roger Dale Nunez is the chief suspect still. Several law enforcement, although it's still considered an unsolved crime, several law enforcement agencies uh, tried to press the case that he was the one that lit the fire. Um, 
what I think it caused is I think it's caused, it for years caused confusion and embarrassment and the upstairs lounge fire not receiving its proper attention and due in the LGBT plus canon and in American history in general. And I think um, now that we're nearing the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall riots, the, that seminal event that took place in New York City in 1969, and we have that uh, capacity to look back and fathom of what uh, the institutional closet did to gay men uh, psychologically um, and on a practical day-to-day -day basis, I think it's a lot more possible now to understand uh, how a person who was gay for pay, who had boyfriends, who had loved other, uh, a man who had loved other men, um, could be so disturbed as to lash out in the way that he did because he existed in a society in essence um, that had twisted and warped his mind and perhaps in quite literally driven him insane. You just walked me through before we started this building, this beautiful uh, building, uh, and showed me some of the places where you wrote this mm. book over the course of almost three years. Yep. As you recount what happened, and this is just a horrifying story, mm. how difficult was it for you to focus on that every day for years? It was terrible. I, I'm, as a gay person who's uh, I, happily married, I, got, I married my husband at Walden Pond, <laughs> close to here, um, I, and I try to nurture a very loving and wonderful domesticity. Um, it was awful to um, have to, to take myself and my imagination back into that building burning, uh, sorry, that burning building every day. Um, and I think working in a place like this um, the, a cathedral of the mind such as this one, where I was permitted to have things I liked around me, such as a coffee next to my computer, which is not something you can have at most libraries, such as a well-behaved dog. I would take my Karen Terrier to work with me um, close to every day, uh, such as my beautiful husband. I would bring him to work with me sometimes every day. Um, and supportive people, such as Tom, who was like always steps away at his office, or there was, there's another, uh, Graham is over here, another librarian who's on that same floor, another, or another gentleman who's a librarian named Ryan. Um, I felt like I had a network of support um, such that when things got to be too intense, as they oftentimes were, especially the fire scene itself, took me about three months to write, um, I could step away and find a little bit of distance consistently. Um, and then I could also um, look at all of the books around me and point to every book and think, that person finished his book. <laughs> she finished her book. <laughs> it's possible to do. And I think I, I, if they could do it, possibly I can get through this and write mine. Well, and you started off by doing research in the beginning and mm -hmm. talking to survivors and, mm -hmm. and, and family members. But you say that when the Pulse shooting happened, which was about a year into your, your research, mm -hmm. all of a sudden, everybody started calling you back and saying, let's talk right now. Yeah, it was um, a lot of the upstairs lounge survivors, and I, I, I've interviewed actually most all of them that are still available and uh, still alive and still talking uh, about the fire itself. Um, some of them were on the fence for a long span of time about whether or they not they wanted to revisit the worst thing that ever happened to them. Um, some didn't see what the point would be. Some had... had done this before where they re they'd recounted their experience of those terrible minutes and um, had to go back to therapy. Um, and I 
wasn't sure about whether or not I was actually going to be able to get some of them on the record. And then that day, <laughs> some of the people that I swear I'd been having this email text dance where I thought they'd given me a final permanent no called with a sense of urgency. And you, I could tell that they sensed that their pain had purpose now and that they wanted to try to give comfort to those who were grieving and um, the Pulse nightclub shooting, and they wanted to give comfort to those who were suffering in Orlando. And it was very meaningful to me, and I had some of the greatest conversations of my life on that terrible, terrible day. Um, and they continued, obviously, because when you interview people for a book, usually you interview them about 10 to 20 times. But that was the start where I felt um, a lot of material I didn't know if I was going to get suddenly um, was just... Uh, pouring in my direction um, because, in, in a sense, uh, in a strange way, the Pulse nightclub shooting uh, was such an unsettling event. People were looking for context and grasp, trying to grasp for any kind of answers, anything in history that could give people a sense of how do I fathom this unimaginable field of slaughter, 49 people dead in Orlando. And in that, in that grasping, they did what I don't think anyone, any historian has succeeded up to that point in doing, is that they unearthed on a national scale this forgotten New Orleans event and this fire. And suddenly the upstairs lounge victims, many of them were ready to speak. The other connection that you make in this book, which is interesting, is the connection between this in 1973 and the AIDS crisis about a decade later, mm. and, and in fact, some of the people who survived the upstairs lounge fire ended up dying of AIDS. Yeah, I mean, the upstairs lounge fire was not recognized uh, for several decades as an important event, not even locally. And many of, the, many of the upstairs lounge victims in the weeks and months that followed were told to hush up, uh, and they, were, they, they received a reinforcing message that their stories didn't matter and many of the upstairs lounge victims and survivors started to believe those messages. Um, so unfortunately, in the midst of the AIDS crisis, um, several of the victims did, uh, were, were victims, they did, um, they did fall in the midst of the epidemic, and they were not able to tell their stories. Um, and both of those, both of those epidemics, when you, when you, when you look at the, um, when you look at, those violent acts, you look at the AIDS crisis and you look at the upstairs lounge fire, you see uh, what I see are two events oftentimes that uh, caused a great amount of stigma. There was stigmatization towards gay folk um, with the upstairs lounge victims. And then, of course, the AIDS crisis caused a, a re-stigmatization of gay bodies on a scale never before seen. But in the 80s, in the midst of that uh, terrible terrible pestilence, what you did see that, uh, that you didn't see in 1973 as a result of the upstairs lounge fire was um, an awakening amongst allies and amongst queer activists na on a national scale where, uh, whereby uh, queer voices were heard. Not fast enough, but th they were eventually heard. Talk a little bit about the news coverage, because you had to go back and read some of the articles that were written, probably all of the articles that were written right after uh, this happened. There weren't that many of them, and they were written in a way that in some cases it wasn't even clear that this was a gay bar. Yeah, so um, many of the, uh, so the upstairs lounge was national, actually international news uh, in the days after it happened for actually about two days. Um, 
in the midst, this is like post-Vietnam news media culture. Um, so the, uh, an event like the Upstairs Lounge Fire, a terrible French Quarter disaster where a bunch of people had died was a prototypical um, true crime gold mine. Um, and it was front page news um, in New York Times, Chicago Tribune, Los Angeles Times, across oceans. It was, uh, it was news in London, it was news in Paris, it was news in Australia, up to the point that it became clear what was the nature of the bar that had burned and what was the nature of the people who had fallen prey to the fire when it became clear that the upstairs lounge was a bar that served homosexual clientele and when it became clear that the, the, most of the victims were gay men, um, the stories dried up because at that point it was considered near impossible for a mainstream readership to find sympathy um, for such individuals. Um, you'll notice what I found was so strange is most publications uh, refused, and even when the Upstairs Lounge was a massive story, um, didn't publish the word homosexual uh, for the first day because that was considered a taboo term, especially in New Orleans, but also na nationally. Um, and a they, if it was published, it certainly, certainly wouldn't appear on the front page of a newspaper. And the word gay was unheard of. Uh, you wouldn't find it in any newspaper publication. Gay was a, 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 gay was a term that was radical. It was a, it was a happy term. Uh, it meant blissful. And to apply it towards a community that in 1973 was still considered to be, by the American Psychiatric Association, um, mentally ill, uh, was controversial and viewed as a political act. So newspapers, in their style guides, would police and censor the word gay. Um, and that was true with much of the upstairs lounge coverage. You spoke uh, as part of your reporting with the New York Times reporter who covered uh, what happened. Yeah, Roy Reed. He was the famous civil rights reporter for, that was the lone roving member of the New York Times Southern Bureau who'd covered um, uh, an event called Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama in 1965. He was quite a famous reporter. And what did he tell you about what happened uh, with the New York Times and the upstairs lounge fire. He said it was the first story he'd ever assignment that he'd ever received from the New York Times involving the homosexual community and that he felt that the only reason that he'd been assigned the story was because the New York Times had made a mistake and thought that this was a true crime disaster story and not a story involving the, the homosexual community. And when he interviewed uh, the bartender of the upstairs lounge, Buddy Rasmussen, in the midst of the interview with Roy Reed and Buddy, um, but he made clear that the upstairs lounge was a gay bar. And Roy Reed made a very difficult decision in his reporting to include the, the unmistakable fact that the upstairs lounge served homosexual clientele. He included that in the piece that he filed with the national desk. And what his editors did was they took that sentence, which he initially had pretty far up in his lead paragraphs, and they kind of buried it a few thousand words deep and then a page jump of about a couple hundred pages. So most people never even saw it. Um, but it was an honor to speak to Roy Reed about this. Um, and I had one of the last, another reason it was an honor is it was one of the last interviews that actually Roy Reed ever gave. Um, he passed away um, actually about a year and a half ago. Um, and I don't think people recognize um, Although he's known for his civil rights reporting, I don't think at all he's been recognized for this uh, reportorial contribution to the gay rights movement. Um, but I think he deserves it. I have to say, um, I had not even heard of this fire until maybe the last year or two. And, uh, and it was because I did a, a, an interview on my show with um, some 
family members of one of the victims, Ferris mm. LeBlanc, who uh, was buried in an unmarked grave uh, after this happened. And like many people mm -hmm. who, yeah, there were, who were victims of this, in part, yeah. sometimes because their family didn't want to claim them. Mm -hmm. Um, it would be controversial. Some of them weren't from New Orleans, or they were very religious, and they were worried about the consequences of what would happen if they claimed one of their one of their own, one of their own family members, their flesh and blood, as homosexual. They thought it would ruin their reputations in their churches and in their hometowns. So, his family members are now trying to get his remains returned to them. So this this story continues even today. Yeah, I mean, it's contemporary news. The LeBlanc family uh, is still fighting Louisiana bureaucracies to try to locate Ferris LeBlanc's body in the decrepit, remote, unmarked field in a terrible place in New Orleans East where they put the final four upstairs lounge victims that were unclaimed by family members, three unidentified individuals, and then one identified Ferris LeBlanc. And what's sad about this is Ferris LeBlanc um, was a, uh, a, a veteran. He served honorably in World War II. Um, landed at Normandy, uh, helped beat back the Nazi counteroffensive at the Battle of the Bulge. Um, and then died a few days after his birthday um, at the upstairs lounge fire um, in this act of arson. And his family still, I mean, he, he deserves a proper military burial in a family plot. And it's, uh, it's sobering to realize, uh, especially with the way that Louisiana bureaucracy and corruption works, that they're still trying to figure out where the heck in that remote, unmarked, that potter's field, um, the upstairs lounge victims were buried. And then after that, what legal gymnastics are they going to have to go through? And they've been trying for several years to exhume the body and bring him home. So this is still um, a contemporary story. Do you remember the first time that you heard about the upstairs lounge? Yeah, fire? I hadn't heard about it either, which was part of the re I felt an obligation to tell this story because I, I thought I knew queer history. It was late this is either late 2013 or early 2014. I'm not, I don't know the, ex I can't remember the exact date, but um, I received my initiation um, from a former Columbia Journalism School professor. He's a New Yorker writer named Nicholas Lemon, who grew up in New Orleans and happened to have been a baby reporter at an alt-weekly publication in the French Quarter the summer that the upstairs lounge fire happened. Um, and. Uh, Professor Lemon's uh, first journalistic mentor was a, an openly gay man named Bill Rushton, who performed uh, really some of the most enterprising reporting on the, and, and filed some of the most incredible stories on the upstairs lounge fire in the days and weeks following in, in New Orleans' equivalent tiny newspaper of the, the, their own version of the Village Voice. It was called the Vieux Carré Courier, uh, an ultra-liberal neighborhood news, uh, newspaper. And when I asked Professor Lemon, um, could you tell me more about this fire? I mean, your, your mentor was reporting it. You were, in the, you were in the French Quarter that summer. He couldn't he couldn't say anything more. He, he said, I don't understand why, but it's too hazy. I think something may, must have happened in that culture and in that community to create a kind of trauma uh, and a kind of, I, I got the sense from him that there perhaps was a kind of collective amnesia about this event, and which meant that it was in all likelihood ripe for revisitation. So I, 
I did what any crazy reporter who gets a cent does is I spent three years in the yeah. library writing a book. I, yeah, I, I I hopped on a plane and I went and stayed with the only two people I knew in town in New Orleans in the wisteria scented sunroom of the only people I knew in town and started delving into archives and trying to research this 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 fire. Um, but the more and more I delved it, I explored it, the more I understood that this event had been swept so far into the rug that there were so many layers of denial. Um, and every, every breakthrough I ever had in the book, it felt like I was always piercing another layer of denial about this event. What did it make you think about what is happening now in terms of the continuation of gay liberation. I mean, it's only been a few years since same-sex marriage has been legal uh, yeah. across the country. Uh, put it, how did it put, how, how did it put what's happening now in, in the, the context of the whole history? Yeah. For me, it reminded me that the history of the LGBT plus rights movement, which is probably one of the most successful social movements in the past 50 years in terms of rights acquisitions uh, for a minority group, which is a, actually a rainbow coalition of, co coalition of even tinier minority groups, um, is not just this triumphal march to civil liberties, which is, you know, worth our celebration, and, but it's also um, the history of the LGBT rights movement is a history of those who fell. It's a lost history of atrocities, oftentimes, and it's important that we mark those events and recall and remember them to honor those who did not make it to the day and age where they could enjoy the freedoms that I know I enjoy, you and I enjoy. Um, but also, um, so that our, these acts of memory in the honor of those who fail can be viable acts of protest against those who would continue to tell us in contemporary society that we don't deserve to be heard and that we should slink back into the shadows. I think a lot about um, reactions to Pete Buttigieg's uh, husband and uh, some of the comments that you hear about uh, involving people asking, why does he have to be so upfront about his marriage? Well, I was reading a story just this morning in the Washington Post about uh, Chastin Buttigieg uh, and the fact that his brothers, even today, still say that you know they don't agree with the gay lifestyle that he has. It's fascinating, yes. It's it's true. What's interesting, and I don't I don't know how much we want to delve into the Buttigieg territory, <laughs> but I feel like Pete Buttigieg is, represents um, also a reunification in his spiritual life with an aspect of the upstairs lounge history and early gay liberation movement, which was um, many of the victims of the upstairs lounge fire had been part of a ragtag, very radical Christian denomination that was national, but had a local chapter in New Orleans called the Metropolitan Community Church. And the MC, MCC were the initials for it. And the MCC church had a vastly important impact in the early gay rights movement that's been plowed under, um, in large part because I think uh, queer folk oftentimes are so damaged by their own religious upbringings um, that sometimes in our own movement we don't want to hear about uh, individuals of faith, but um, the MCC church um, in the aftermath of the upstairs lounge fire in 1973 um, conducted some of the most important acts of um, awareness promotion and activism, raising an unprecedented amount of money for the upstairs lounge victims at that time in 1973, $20,000. That was the most successful fundraising effort in ever in the history of gay liberation at that point, the most successful blood drive 
uh, pre-AIDS, there would be blood drives in response to gay emergencies um, in the history of gay liberation at that point. A blood drive so successful that it actually touched every American major city, including Boston, or at the Charles Street Meeting House in July 1973. People met to donate blood for the upstairs lounge fire, and there was so much blood donated in the blood bank that um, up essentially that blood bank was used through 1976 um, in support of any kind of gay liberation emergency. So it was a real galvanizing event. You now live in New Orleans. I do. What do you feel or what do you think when you pass that site of the upstairs lounge? Wow. Um, I think a lot of things. Um, I look at the bronze plaque, the monument. It's 32 inches by 32 inches. I measured it because I'm weird. That was put in front of the historic door of uh, of the upstairs uh, of the of, of the upstairs lounge. It was the place steps away from that where the, the initial spark was lit in the staircase. Um, and I look at that bronze plaque, and I th I still think I, I hear in my head the question that that I that I was consistently asking when I when I actually wrote the book. A lot of book authors, a lot of journalists will have a single question they ask themselves. And my question was, when I look at the monument, how is this here? How could, it's a beautiful monument. It's got the, it's got the upside down triangle. It's got all of the names of the upstairs lounge victims. You see tourists pass by it every day and they read the names of those victims. And every day new people are learning about this event. And I'm consistently just wondering what made this event persist, where it's now recognized as an important event, but this wasn't something that even in New Orleans or nationally, people wanted to talk about six months later. Um, how is a blue whale story like the Upstairs Lounge, something that sounds in the past and then sinks dwelling unseen for years and decades, how does it resurface in the present moment in such a way that it has, singing its, its sad, strange song of the past and moving so many people? That's something that goes through my head consistently, and I'm constantly amazed. The, the answer I feel like that, I, that I've come up with or that it responds to is that um, I think it was the persistent activism of a tiny group of vocal people throughout years when no one wanted to talk about the upstairs lounge fire. Um, and those, 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 those tiny acts that no one wanted to hear uh, eventually succeeded, eventually gained traction, and eventually resulted in uh, this event receiving its proper due and being placed on the map of not just the LGBT plus rights movement, but um, the greater civil rights movement. Uh, before we take some questions, uh, if people have them, I want to have you read a little bit, uh, if you would like, from sure. your book. So I don't read the fire section, because um, I think that's some, something that someone should read if they choose to read in private, um, and it's gruesome and awful. But um, I will read, um, I do read a section um, of the aftermath. Um, so to set the scene, the upstairs lounge fire has happened. Uh, flames have exploded through the windows of a secret second story gay bar. 29 people have died within a span of minutes. Um, three more are going to be doomed to agonizing deaths in a hospital burn ward. And those who survived and got out surprisingly of that building in the pandemonium and panic are now trying to sort out what just happened to them. Dusk, June 24th, 1973. 
barreling down a stairwell that plunged from the rooftop in the secret back exit of a burning gay bar, Ronnie Rosenthal emerged into a New Orleans street teeming with sirens. Ronnie guided Ricky Everett, a fellow fire survivor, from spot to spot as flyer, fire trucks plowed through taxis to reach the burgeoning blaze. Cloaked in suit and human cremains, Ricky was unable to see for the tears clouding his eyes. Quote, they had all that space for people lying there on the street, recalled Ricky, and they were pulling the burning clothes off of them. By some strange feat, neither Ricky nor Ronnie turned the corner onto Charter Street to witness Ricky's best friend, MCC Pastor Bill Larson, in his final repose, seared to the windowsill of the upstairs lounge, one floor above, closeted, Church deacon Joseph Courtney Craighead, however, did so and became dumbstruck. Indeed, Courtney struggled to inhale and exhale alongside Rusty Quinton and Ricky and the other survivors who, by some miracle or some curse, were forced to look up at carnage also intended for them. Their guilt was sudden and uncontrollable. Courtney moved like a stranger in his own limbs dropping all of his social defenses which had protected him from the dangers of wayward openness at a time when openness about one's sexual secret could cost a man his job, his home, his family, and his freedom, not to mention his church deacon, Courtney Craighead, inadvertently used his real name when answering questions from bystanders and police. Just then, a throng of reporters and news crews seemed to materialize, among them Jean Laplace of the Times-Picayune and Bill Elder of a CBS affiliate TV station. They showed press credentials, and police lifted the tape to allow them immediate access in this era. Little adversity between police and the press seemed to exist and the, member of the members of the press could in fact be favored or squeezed by the gatekeepers of keepers of City Hall. En masse, reporters rushed survivors like Courtney, who'd only had seconds to escape a room of friends being eaten alive by flames. The cacophony of voices made it difficult for Courtney to hear orders from police and firefighters. As the ranking officer on the scene, Major Henry M. Morris of the New Orleans Police Department made a statement to the state's item, a New Orleans newspaper, about the upstairs lounge. Quote, some thieves hung out there, and you know this was a queer bar, he said. A second police officer, perhaps attempting to qualify Morris's comment, explained how it was, quote, not uncommon for homosexuals to carry false identification. Ronnie LaBeouf, a photojournalist, captured images of the dead and despairing. Quote, fire came up the stairs fast, Courtney muttered to the state's item, which quoted him by name, linking him indelibly to the incinerated gay bar called the upstairs lounge. Quote, two guys told me to jump and I was small enough, survivor Adolf Misdina said to the Associated Press. Quote, what was done was done intentionally. An anonymous man, interviewed with his back to the camera, told El Bill Elder, the CBS reporter, seeing the macabre, ashen gray face of Bill Larson in the window, photographer Pat Bork of the Daily Record, displaying a gallows humor common to newsmen, took a picture and jested, quote, at least it was only a mannequin factory. Those aren't mannequins, someone else told him. 
a nearby tourist provided testimony to the Daily Record, quote, we watched those people burn before our very eyes and we couldn't do a thing to help them. Don't use my name. I just don't want to think about it. It never happened. It never could have happened. Down the street, an associate press reporter watched a bartender set up a drink station on the sidewalk and do, quote, a brisk business with spectators. Well, excellent work uh, on, on this amazing book, which you can all find right out there, along with Cupcakes. Bobby, thank you so much. Thank you.